Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and we are up to episode 30, The Big 3-0. We're going to talk about Gonzalez versus Reich. Now, I assume that's the correct pronunciation, because I went to the beginning of the oral argument on Oyez uh, about this case. A link to that site is in the show notes. And the plaintiff's name is, last name is R-A-I-C-H. I figured it would be Reich, but it's introduced as Reich. So that's what I'll go with. Gonzalez v. Reich. This is another big commerce clause case. It also deals with the necessary and proper clause a bit, but the court applies Wickard v. Filburn, which we discussed back in episode five. And this time the Supreme Court says sick old ladies who have been prescribed medical marijuana by a doctor pursuant to a California law that allows medical marijuana. These old ladies are nevertheless subject to federal prosecution because the Congress's constitutional power to regulate, quote, commerce among the states, end quote, includes activity that is neither commerce nor among the states. I know it sounds like a bad joke, but it's all too real. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me personally on social media, Twitter at Blue Carp, and on facebook.com slash Blue Carp. And now we have a Facebook page for The Law with D.K. Williams. You can find that, and I'll put a link to it in the notes as well. I'd love to hear from you, any of those mediums. Or is it media? I never took Latin. But tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like, tell me what you want more of, tell me what you want less of, and uh, that, that would be very helpful to me. So if you have any thoughts, fire at me. And wherever you are listening, I hope you'll like it, comment it, subscribe, share if you're so inclined. And before we jump into Gonzalez v. Reich, I want to bring up something that happened today at the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, by way of background, the Supreme Court acts like it's too important to have TV cameras or even live audio of its argument. However, they do grace us mere serfs with a transcript of the arguments shortly after they occur. Oh, thank you, my graces. We all curtsy before you for that courtesy. Uh, frankly, I'm not sure if, are they graces or should they just be lords and ladies? My lord, my lady. I don't have any idea about the proper aristocratic titles. Just like little Lord Umber in the most recent Game of Thrones, season 8, episode 1. He didn't know what to call Jon Snow or Sansa Stark or Daenerys Targaryen. I feel your pain, little Lord Umber. I do. In any event, Supreme Court hears arguments upcoming about the Trump administration asking about people's citizenship as a part of the census. Some people think that this is a really big, important case, and they've asked, different media companies have asked for a copy of the audio, the actual audio recording, the same day that the arguments occur. And this is not what the Supreme Court normally does. Chief Justice John Roberts makes that call. It's one of the things that Chief Justice does. He gets to decide when he's going to let the actual audio recording available to the public. And when he was asked about this case, about whether he could let that out the same day, he basically said, no, we're just going to do this like we always do. Y'all can get the audio when we always release it. And so, and apparently the arguments are going to be next Tuesday, which is April 23rd, but the audio, the actual audio won't be released until Friday the 26th. So they will get the transcript of it the same day, but not the audio. And it's all nonsense. Every single argument in the Supreme Court should be live streamed so the whole country can see it. There's absolutely zero legit reason this doesn't happen. It should apply to your state Supreme Court as well. Hey, Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, State Court of Appeals. It would cost almost nothing. You can get a $40 webcam and stream the whole thing. Knowledge is good. Transparency is good. Openness is good. How much could people learn about our judicial system if they could hear the argument and see the arguments? 
it would be a tremendous civics lesson, be incredibly important. But no, our courts are stuck in the dark ages when it comes to treating themselves as royalty. It's a travesty. All right, Gonzalez v. Reich. Who are these people? Alberto Gonzalez was the United States Attorney General at the time this got to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, when the case started, it was Ashcroft versus Reich because the Attorney General, when it started, was John Ashcroft. They were both in the George W. Bush administration. Angel McCleary Reich is the named plaintiff. Diane Monson, also a plaintiff, but Reich listed first, so we get to know her name. They're both medical marijuana users pursuant to the California law. But, of course, they were in violation of federal drug laws, which classify weed as a Schedule One substance, just like heroin. And it's that type of nonsense which breeds a general disrespect of the law, and, I, and that disrespect is well-earned. When any level of government does something patently stupid, it should lose respect. The problem is the people who treat whatever the government does as sacrosanct, even when it is patently stupid. The question before the court in this case, does the Controlled Substances Act, which they shortened to CSA throughout, exceed Congress power under the Commerce Clause as applied to the intrastate cultivation and possession of marijuana for medical use. Now, of course it does, but that's not what the majority said. Just like in the Wicker v. Filburn case, Episode 5 again, the Supreme Court upheld its decision that activity that is neither interstate nor commerce is subject to federal regulation under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Congress has constitutional authority to regulate commerce among the states. That's exactly how the Constitution is written, that part of Article 1, Section 8. The power to regulate commerce among the states. Right there in the enumerated powers. Article 1, Section 8. But somehow, that authority to regulate commerce among the states includes the authority to regulate activity that is not commerce and takes place entirely within one state. Now, regarding weed, it's a product planted in California, in this particular case, grown in California, harvested in California, consumed in California, and never sold at any point, never a com commercial transaction. And somehow, that purely intrastate activity, which is not even commerce, is subject to interstate commerce regulation. We truly live in a constitutional clown show. Only Ivy League intellectuals are smart enough to grasp that logic. The rest of us poor rubes just can't grasp their brilliance. All right, it was a 6-3 decision so thank goodness we had the three, even though it has no bearing on the law, but at least it keeps that legitimacy of limiting federal power to its actual constitutional limits. At least it keeps that alive. So there's hope. At least three got it right. The majority opinion was written by Justice John Paul Stevens. He was nominated by Ford in 1975 and went to Northwestern Law School. So not an Ivy Leaguer. So that's good. And, you know, I like to point this out because you can see how much of an oligarchy the Supreme Court really is. And it's just gotten worse. I mean, this was decided... 14 years ago, and there's a couple of people here that on the Supreme Court that didn't go to Ivy League for law school, like John Paul Stevens. He went to Northwestern. So he was joined by Anthony Kennedy, who was appointed in 88 by Reagan, so much for limited constitutional government from the Republicans. He's an Ivy Leaguer, Harvard Law. David Souter, appointed in 1990 by George H.W. Bush, again, thanks Republicans. He also went to Harvard Law also. Ruth Ginsburg joined the majority, nominated in 93 by Bill Clinton. She graduated from Columbia Law. And so, and where are the UT Austin justices, the UVA justices? They haven't been around, and I think they should be. Help break up the oligarchy. All right, Stephen Breyer also was in the majority, nominated by Clinton. He took office in 94. Again, Harvard Law. Now, 
Antonin Scalia agreed with the outcome, so he's one of the six, but he wrote a separate concurrence. Again, everybody knows Scalia is a famous Reagan appointee, right? He took uh, office in 86 on the Supreme Court. Thanks, Republicans, again, for your commitment to a limited constitutional government. Ha. Scalia also went to Harvard. And I, again, I hope that the insular nature of the Supreme Court is becoming apparent. It's why I mentioned these law schools. It's an oligarchy in robes, an absolute oligarchy, both R&D presidents perpetuated by consistently nominating people from these same Ivy League prestigious, with air quotes, all schools. So Scalia wrote separately, he wanted to emphasize the importance of the necessary and proper clause to his analysis, which we'll mention. All right, the dissent, the people that got it right, thank goodness, even though it doesn't matter as to the application of what the federal government's going to do to the law and the authority they will now wield and have been wielding. Main dissent was written by Sandra Day O'Connor, she was nominated by Reagan. Good for her. She took office in 81. She went to Stanford Law, so that's good. Not another Harvard grad. Well, of course, she's long gone. And so is William Rehnquist, who was nominated by Reagan in 86. He joined the dissent, also a Harvard Law guy. And Clarence Thomas, nominated by H.W. Bush in 91, and went to Yale Law. So not a Harvard guy, just Yale. Thomas also wrote a separate dissent, which is right on the money, which we'll talk about. So what are the facts? How did we get to the U.S. Supreme Court? Here's some bare-bones legal procedure and the relevant claims of this case. And this is from the OES site, which is linked. In 1996, California voters passed the Compassionate Use Act, legalizing marijuana for medical use. California's law conflicted with the Federal Control Substances Act, the CSA, which banned possession of marijuana. After the DEA seized doctor-prescribed marijuana, from a patient's home, a group of medical marijuana users sued the DEA and then U.S. Attorney John Ashcroft, who was later replaced by Alberto Gonzalez, in federal district court. The medical marijuana users, Reich and Monson, argued that the Controlled Substances Act, the federal statute, which Congress passed under its constitutional power to regulate interstate commerce, that's at least what Congress claimed, Reich argued that that exceeded Congress's commerce power. The district court ruled against the plaintiffs. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and ruled in favor of the plaintiff, said that the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act, is unconstitutional, or was unconstitutional, as it applied to intrastate, within the state, medical marijuana use. The Ninth Circuit relied on two cases that narrowed that Commerce Clause power. It didn't really narrow it. It put some limit on what Congress could do, but actually tried to put a little bit of teeth back into the Commerce Clause and the actual limitation that it is. It's not a grant of general power, although that's how it's been treated for almost 100 years. So one of the cases that the Ninth Circuit relied on was U.S. v. Lopez, which we talked about, episode 22. That was the case where the Supreme Court said the Gun-Free Zone Act passed by Congress was outside the scope of the Commerce Clause power because possessing a gun is not commerce and mere possession of something is not commercial activity whatsoever. And if you just have it within a certain local place, it's not legitimately regulated by Congress pursuant to the Con Commerce Clause power. The Ninth Circuit ruled that the medical marijuana use did not substantially affect, that's the magic words, substantially affect interstate commerce and therefore could not be regulated by Congress. That substantially effect language comes from Wickard v. Filburn. And it's been expanded ever since. In this case, expands it as well. So the Ninth Circuit had the right result, but of course the feds, Ashcroft, and the Justice Department appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court where the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the Ninth Circuit decision and continued to expand the power of Congress far beyond its actual constitutional legitimacy. Justice Stevens, writing for the court, starts it off. He says, California is one of at least nine states that authorized the use of marijuana for medicinal purposes. Remember, this was in 2005. It's more than that now. He goes on. The question presented in this case 
is whether the power vested in Congress by Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution its authority to, quote, regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states, in the quote of the Constitution. But he goes on, does that power include the power to prohibit the local cultivation and use of marijuana in compliance with California law? So Article I, Section 8, applicable enumerated power, commonly called the Commerce Clause or the Interstate Commerce Clause. Stephen gets into the history of the California Medical Marijuana Statutes. The Compassionate Use Act was passed in 1996. He says, Respondents Angel Reich and Diane Monson are California residents who suffer from a variety of serious medical conditions and have sought to avail themselves of medical marijuana pursuant to the terms of the Compassionate Use Act, the California statute. He goes on, Both women have been using marijuana as a medication for several years pursuant to their doctor's recommendation, and both rely heavily on cannabis to function on a daily basis. Indeed, Reich's physician believes that foregoing cannabis treatments would certainly cause Reich excruciating pain and could very well prove fatal. Now get this part. Stephen lays out the government action against these dangerous criminals. He says, On August 15, 2002, county deputy sheriffs and agents from the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration came to Monson's home. After a thorough investigation, the county officials concluded that her use of marijuana was entirely lawful as a matter of California law. Nevertheless, after a three-hour standoff, the federal agents not the county ones, the federal agents seized and destroyed all six of her cannabis plants. All right, let me just say this by way of clearly editorial content, which all of this is, by the way. Any law enforcement officer that participated in that raid is a bad human being. No way around it, no excuses. I don't care about them doing their job because they don't have to do their job. They chose to do this. People that raided this woman's house and destroyed her medicine are bad people. Reich and Monson sued to stop the feds from enforcing the federal statute, quote, to the extent it prevents them from possessing, obtaining, or manufacturing cannabis for their personal medical use. So they lost to the trial court, weren't the Ninth Circuit, when the Ninth Circuit said the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act, the federal statute, was an unconstitutional exercise of Congress Commerce Clause authority. The Ninth Circuit distinguished some other cases like, like Wickard, but basically they're saying that something that is neither interstate nor commerce isn't subject to federal regulation pursuant to the Interstate Commerce Clause Authority as applied to these two plaintiffs. Specifically, the feds couldn't ban, quote, from the Ninth Circuit opinion, the intrastate non-commercial cultivation and possession of cannabis for personal medical purposes as recommended by a patient's physician pursuant to valid California state law. But the Supreme Court says the feds can do that, including Scalia, and that's absurd. There should be a word stronger than absurd that would apply here. Perhaps farcical. The entire basis for a major section of federal authority is based on a farce. It's not even a lie. No one believes the Constitution actually grants this authority. The authority to regulate activity that is neither interstate nor commerce, but plenty of people wish it were true, and they pretend that it is. Let's quit pretending. Let's call people out on this. If they say, hey, Dave, but, but the Supreme Court said, ask them. That if the Supreme Court said that the sun was the moon, would that make it so? Because that's, that's what they have done with the Commerce Clause. And they've done here again with Reich. The dissent gets it right, and we'll get to them. The Supreme Court majority cites the dissent in the Court of Appeals case. Because that's who, what they end up agreeing with, basically, is the Court of Appeals dissent. Stevens writes, The dissenting judge concluded the Controlled Substances Act, as applied to respondents, Reich and Monson, was clearly valid. Moreover, he thought it, quote, simply impossible to distinguish 
the relevant conduct surrounding the cultivation and use of the marijuana crop at issue, in this case, from the cultivation and use of the wheat crop that affected interstate commerce in Workard v. Filbert. And he's right about Wickard. But as we discussed at length in episode 5, Wickard is just wrong. Wickard is an abomination. It's pure sophistry. It amended the Constitution because Supreme Court justices agreed that the feds should have more power than they were granted under the Constitution. So they amended the Constitution more to their liking. It's criminal. Stevens writes, back in the Reich case, This case is made more difficult by respondents' strong arguments that they will suffer irreparable harm because despite congressional finding to the contrary, marijuana does have valid therapeutic purposes. The question before us, however, is not whether it is wise to enforce the statute in these circumstances. Rather, it is whether Congress' power to regulate interstate markets for medicinal substances encompasses the portions of those markets that are supplied with drugs produced and consumed locally. Well-settled law controls our answer, Stephen says. The CSA, Controlled Substances Act, is a valid exercise of federal power, even as applied to the troubling facts of this case. So at least he admits it's the troubling facts. And after stating the court's conclusion, like he, he did right there, they get into their analysis. They go over some of the war on drugs, how Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1969. Again, thanks, limited government Republicans. Nixon not only gave us the DEA for his war on drugs, expanded the federal government, he also gave us the EPA, totally unrelated, but he expanded uh, the federal government again. And some people still like to kid themselves that the GOP believes in a limited government. It's, it's ridiculous. Now, it's noteworthy that Congress started regulating drugs in 1906, but they had the decency to explicitly limit the statute to drugs actually, quote, traveling in interstate commerce. Congress and the courts no longer have that decency. It went out the window in Wickard. It went out the window during FDR's New Deal. The court mentions that history and says, more some more history, they quote, or they say, I'm quoting them, marijuana itself was not significantly regulated by the federal government until 1937, when accounts of marijuana's addictive qualities and physiological effects, paired with dissatisfaction with enforcement efforts at state and local levels, prompted Congress to pass the marijuana tax. By mere coincidence, perhaps. Federal regulation of marijuana started in 1937. The movie Reefer Madness was released the year before 1936. You can see how propaganda is effective. The Supreme Court continues on with its history lesson about federal regulation of drugs. Quote, in enacting the CSA, Congress classified marijuana as a Schedule I drug. This preliminary classification was based in part on the recommendation of the Assistant Secretary of HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare, quote, that marijuana be retained within Schedule 1 at least until the completion of certain studies now underway. Apparently, those studies were never completed. The court goes on, Schedule 1 drugs are categorized as such because of their high potential for abuse. Marijuana doesn't have a high potential for abuse. Their lack of any accepted medical use Marijuana does have an accepted medical use. An absence of any accepted safety for use in medically supervised treatment. Well, marijuana does have that. So that statement is just ignorant. Just ignorant. And statutes like this, like I said, they breed disrespect for the law and for government and for law enforcement. Stevens notes, quote, Despite considerable efforts to reschedule marijuana, it remains a Schedule One drug. That was in 2005. It still is in 2019. The absurdity continues. DA doesn't want it rescheduled because that means less power for them, a smaller budget, less things for them to do, less people for them to boss around, draw their guns on. And as Upton Sinclair said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. 
Upton nailed the entire existence of the DEA right there, and the war on drugs for that matter. The court goes on, Our understanding of the reach of the Commerce Clause, as well as Congress' assertion of authority thereunder, has evolved over time. Indeed it has. Evolving is a nice way of saying, we decided, the court, we decided, we wanted to expand the power of the federal government. That's the evolution. In discussing this evolution, the court goes on, Stevens writes, Cases deciding during that new era, which now spans more than a century, he's talking about the Industrial Revolution, basically. Those cases have identified three general categories of regulation in which Congress is authorized to engage under its commerce power. First, Congress can regulate the channels of interstate commerce. Okay, interstate highways, rivers that go from one state to another. Second, Congress has authority to regulate and protect the instrumentalities of interstate commerce and persons or things in interstate commerce the apples crossing from one state to another. Third, and this is the problem, Congress has the power to regulate activities that substantially affect interstate commerce. Substantially affect. And we talked about this in the Wicker in episode five. That's not what the Constitution says. It says commerce among the states, not activity that substantially affects interstate commerce or commerce among the states. Wicker may be the worst Supreme Court decision that hasn't since been overturned. There's been some really bad ones, but most of them have been overturned, like Plessy overturned. Dred Scott overturned. And while those cases dealt with outright racial discrimination, Michelle Alexander, in her book, The New Jim Crow, discusses exhaustively and effectively and compellingly how the war on drugs is racist. And it does adversely affect, disproportionately affect people of color. And all of that exists. The federal war on drugs exists solely because of Wickard v. Filburn. That's what started it. And Reich just confirmed that in 2005. The Reich Court notes, only the third category, that we just talked about, is implicated in the case at hand. Oh, no kidding. Only the third category is the problem. Being made up by the Supreme Court is indeed a problem. They quote Supreme Court and Reich quotes where it all started in Wickard. They quote this proudly. As we stated in Wickard, even if Apelli's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. The quoteness with pride, the one sentence that eviscerated the concept of enumerated powers, federalism, the entire foundation of the Constitution, they erased it like a misspelled word. They deleted it like an angry email. They gutted it like a bass. The entire Constitution was rewritten, amended, edited, like some first-year sports reporter story in a high school football game. And eh, we don't like what you did here, we're going to rewrite it. And they did. The court notes, quote, the similarities between this case and Wickard are striking. Again, that's true. And the Congress has no legitimate authority to pass either statute in either case. And this is one of the places or one of the examples of how the doctrine of stare decisis fails. That just means that once the court makes a decision, it's bound by that decision. It's a thing decided, stare decisis. Now, the Supreme Court has overturned cases in the past, like I mentioned. And they should do it here, but of course they won't. Too much federal power exists now because of these cases. That's why the federal government is so overreaching into every aspect of our daily lives. They have no legit authority to do that. The founders and the Constitution does not contemplate that. It prohibits that. But nevertheless, we've let that happen. It has happened, and we have not stopped it. Now, can you imagine if, a, say, some leading historical physicist, he had some famous calculation. Can you imagine that if somebody found out today that that calculation was wrong, but the, phys the, but the modern physicist said, you know what, that's too bad. We're bound by that guy's wrong calculation. Of course not, right? That's just stupid. Yet that is the way our appellate judicial decision process works. Got a bad decision? Well, we're stuck with it. And that's ridiculous. The court says in the Streich case, again referring to Wickard, 
In Wickard, we had no difficulty concluding that Congress had a rational basis for the regulation at issue there. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, but this rational basis justification is just maddening. What the court is saying here, if the effect of it is, if Congress has a rational basis for violating the Constitution, it's okay. But in reality, violating the Constitution, even if you've got a really good reason for it, is still violating the Constitution. So even if Congress says, hey, you know what, we really need to regulate this activity that's not interstate, it's all intrastate, it's not commercial whatsoever, you know, we really need to regulate it. We got a great argument on why we need to regulate it. The Supreme Court shouldn't say, well, that's rational, it's okay. The Supreme Court should say, sorry, you are barred from doing that by the Constitution. And that's the entire point of the Constitution, is to limit the federal government's power. I mean, there's a rational basis, so you can make a, a, a great argument for allowing police to search your car without consent, right? Without consent, without probable cause. Probably great reasons to do that. How many, how many bad guys could we catch? It's still unconstitutional that the Supreme Court uses a rational basis as an excuse to amend the Constitution, to violate the Constitution, to allow the federal government to infringe upon our individual rights. It's, it's a travesty. The court goes on. In both cases, Reich and Wickard, the regulation is squarely within Congress commerce power because production of the commodity meant for home consumption, be it wheat or marijuana, has a substantial effect on supply and demand in the national market for that commodity. So they're just doubling down on that whole idea. And they're upholding Wickard, which again is wrong. This substantial effect, whether or not, like these two old ladies growing six plants, or one of them had six plants. It's debatable whether or not that one lady and her six plants would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, but it doesn't matter. Even if it does have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, it is not interstate commerce. O'Connor mentions this in her dissent. Church bake sales could have a substantial effect on the interstate commerce of baked goods, but that doesn't make federal regulation of a church bake sale legitimate. And this is the same thing, except bake sales are actual commercial transactions. Growing your own plant and consuming it isn't even commerce. So look out, watch out, coming soon, a federal statute on church bake sales. It's clearly legit under this Supreme Court precedent of Wickard and Reich and others. And in a footnote in this Reich case, the Supreme Court acknowledges, quote, that Wickard's activity may not be regarded as commerce. They're quoting the Wickard case. They acknowledge it's not commerce. Yet they regulate it anyway because they have the power to regulate commerce. They want the government to have the power to regulate commerce. So they say it's not commerce, but we can regulate it because it's commerce. It's like holding the Constitution up to a funhouse mirror. It looks ridiculous. But no matter how much it's distorted by the mirror, it still, in reality, says something else. And here's some highfalutin language from the court here in Reich. In assessing the scope of Congress' authority under the Commerce Clause, we stress that the task before us is a modest one. We need not determine whether respondents' activities, that's the ladies with their marijuana, taken in the aggregate, substantially affect interstate commerce. We don't have to do that. We only have to decide whether a rational basis exists for so concluding. Again, with this whole rational basis nonsense, it eviscerates the constitutional enumerated powers. It asks, does Congress have a rational basis to violate the Constitution? If they do, okay. It destroys the foundation laid by the Constitution of federalism. It bulldozes the building. It backhoes the concrete underlying it, loads it into trucks, and hauls it off to the landfill. Again, there would certainly be a rational basis for allowing law enforcement to tap your phone without a warrant. It makes catching bad guys easier. That's rational. But it's still a violation of the Fourth Amendment, and rationality doesn't make it okay. Yet, 
That's the court's analysis. Instead of applying it to the Fourth Amendment, they're applying it to the enumerated powers of Congress. It's rational to violate the Constitution, so it's not a violation of the Constitution. Pure, unadulterated, 100% sophistry. And then in another footnote, Stevens, writing for the court, says, quote, Respondent submissions, the old ladies, if accepted, would place all homegrown medical substances beyond the reach of Congress regulatory jurisdiction. Well, yeah, that's the point. It should be. Court makes the same point in discussing the dissents, O'Connor and Thomas and Rehnquist, who joined O'Connor. They say, the dissenters' rationale logically extends to place any federal regulation of any locally cultivated and possessed controlled substance for any purpose beyond the outer limits of Congress Commerce Clause authority. Yes, exactly. You got it. That's the point. The dissent is correct. So, the court rules against these sick old ladies who will be deprived of their pain meds, but gives them this consolation. He actually writes this. But perhaps even more important than these legal avenues is the democratic process in which the voices of voters allied with those respondents may one day be heard in the halls of Congress. So, we're not going to enforce your constitutional rights. Maybe you guys can get Congress to change it so they won't violate your rights anymore. And it's particularly galling when the Supreme Court says something like this, because that applies to a lot of what they do. Hey, just get Congress to change it. But the point is, Congress isn't legitimately allowed to do that. And, I mean, it was uh, years later, but in the Obergefell case, which said that um, gay marriages had to be recognized by the states, they didn't make that argument. They could have said, um, you guys want to get married? You know what? Just take it up with Congress, which is what they're telling these ladies to do in Reich. But they didn't tell the plaintiffs in Obergefell to do it. They shouldn't have done it in either case, is my point. They didn't do it in one, but they did it in the other. So that's the majority opinion. Scalia wrote separately to concur with the result. And his main point is right here. He says, um, talking about that third category where Congress can regulate activity that substantially affects interstate commerce. He says, the third category is different from the other two. And it's recitation without explanation by the court in the majority opinion, is misleading and incomplete. It is misleading because, unlike the channels, instrumentalities, and agents of interstate commerce, activities that substantially affect interstate commerce are not themselves part of interstate commerce, and thus the power to regulate them cannot come from the Commerce Clause alone. So far, so good, but then he undoes it. Rather, he says, as this court has acknowledged, Congress regulatory authority over intrastate activities that are not themselves part of interstate commerce derives from the necessary and proper clause. But here's the problem with that, and O'Connor makes this point in the dissent. The necessary and proper clause doesn't expand the enumerated powers themselves. For example, federal government, Congress, has the power, an enumerated power, the legitimate authority to operate a post office. That's an enumerated power. Building a building where people can get their mail, hiring mail carriers, they're not specifically enumerated. It doesn't say Congress can hire mail carriers. But hiring mail carriers and building a building where people can come to get their mail is necessary and proper for that power. No problem with that. But something cannot be necessary and proper to do something unconstitutional itself. It can't be necessary and proper to regulate activity that's not interstate commerce under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Such a construction negates the limited nature of the power granted and turns it into a general grant of authority to do almost anything. And that is sophistry. So O'Connor's dissent, and again, this is the one with Rehnquist and Thomas joining. A couple of highlights from that. She says, quote, We enforce the outer limits of Congress Commerce Clause authority, not for their own sake, but to protect historic spheres of state sovereignty from excessive federal encroachment, and thereby to maintain the distribution of power fundamental to our federalist system of government. Amen, sister. 
She goes on, one of federalism's chief virtues, of course, is that it promotes innovation by allowing for the possibility that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without the risk to the rest of the country. She goes on, exercising those powers, California, by ballot initiative and then by legislative codification, has come to its own conclusion about the difficult and sensitive question of whether marijuana should be available to relieve severe pain and suffering. Today, the court sanctions, the Supreme Court in the majority opinion, sanctions an application of the Federal Controlled Substances Act that extinguishes that experiment. Without any proof that the personal cultivation, possession, and use of marijuana for medicinal purposes, if economic activity in the first place, which is not, has a substantial effect on interstate commerce and is therefore an appropriate subject of federal regulation. And here's the great point that I, her great point that I alluded to earlier. She says, it will not do to say that Congress may regulate non-commercial activity simply because it may have an effect on the demand for commercial goods or because the non-commercial endeavor can, in some sense, substitute for commercial activity. Most commercial goods or services have some sort of privately producible analog. Home care substitutes for daycare. Charades games substitute for movie tickets. Backyard or windowsill gardening substitutes for going to the supermarket. To draw the line wherever private activity affects the demand for market goods is to draw no line at all and to declare everything economic. We have already rejected the result that would follow, a federal police power. Amen, Justice O'Connor. Amen. You nailed it. And that is exactly what this case allows, a federal police power. And her examples are dead on. If the federal government wants to regulate the potatoes you grow in your backyard, this rationale lets it do that. And that should be frightening to all of us. She goes on and she discusses how intrastate the activity of Reich is with her medical marijuana plants. She writes, The homegrown cultivation and personal possession and use of marijuana for medicinal purposes has no apparent commercial character. Everyone agrees that the marijuana at issue in this case was never in the stream of commerce, and neither were the supplies for growing it. Marijuana is highly unusual among the substances subject to the Controlled Substances Act in that it can be cultivated without any materials that have traveled in interstate commerce. Lopez, that gun-free zone case, makes clear that possession is not itself commercial activity. And respondents, right, Chidmonson, have not come into possession by means of any commercial transaction. They have simply grown in their own homes marijuana for their own use without acquiring, buying, bartering a thing of value. She's all over it. Then she refutes Glia's necessary and proper point. She says, Congress must exercise its authority under the necessary and proper clause in a manner consistent with basic constitutional principles, like I mentioned. Likewise, she says, that authority must be used in a manner consistent with the notion of enumerated powers a structural principle that is much as part of the Constitution as the Tenth Amendment's explicit textual command. She's all over it. Man, I, doing these cases have really given me a much, much greater appreciation for Sandra Day O'Connor. I'm sure she's done some stuff that I would disagree with, but she's nailing this. So Thomas wrote separately. He agreed with O'Connor, as did Rehnquist, but Thomas wrote separately a, another dissent that he wanted to explain more stuff on. He gets right to the point, and he nails it. In his first lines, he said, wrote, Respondents Diane Monson and Angel Reich use marijuana that has never been bought or sold, that has never crossed state lines, and that has had no demonstrable effect on the national market for marijuana. If Congress can regulate this under the Commerce Clause, then it can regulate virtually 
anything. And the federal government is no longer one of limited and enumerated powers. Amen, Justice Thomas. Amen to you, brother. It can't be any clearer than this. Thomas wrote in two sentences, five lines. Simple truth. That's absolutely accurate. But it takes pages and pages to engage in the sophistry necessary to obfuscate that simple truth. So that's the hopeful note on this case. Thomas is still in the court. O'Connor and Rehnquist are not. But as long as someone like him holds on to a strand of simple truth, others can join and maybe turn that strand into a rope. Don't let go of that strand. Guard it. Call people out on this nonsense. Just because the Supreme Court said something doesn't make it right. The truth is the truth. The sun is the sun. The sun is not the moon, even if the Supreme Court says it is. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law. Episode 30, Gonzalez v. Reich. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Tell me what you like. Hit me up with your comments. Twitter at Blue Carp. Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. And visit and like the Facebook page for The Law with D.K. Williams. Bread the word. Government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression.